I said, oh, good. If our water stops working again, we'll know which unmarked pipe at the side of the road to get it from. There's this criticism of libertarians that we're just individualists. We don't care about anybody else. We just want to do our own thing. We're self-interested. We just want to go build a cabin in the woods and be left alone. What we as libertarians really want, I would argue, and I think what most people want, is freedom. Freedom equals individual liberty plus community power. Community empowers individuals. Community is not collectivism. Collectivism is not community. Individual liberty optimizes community. Liberated individuals make community stronger, and strong communities make us better individuals. There are four bases of community. People-based community, where your community is really focused on specific individuals within that community. A place-based community, where your community is defined by a certain group of people living within a certain area profit-based community, which is a community of people who have shared economic opportunities, and a philosophy-based community, which is a community of people who share similar ideas. I think some of the earliest communities, which might have been tribal, nomadic, hunter-gatherer communities, were people-based communities. As we developed to more of an agricultural society, people started to settle down on certain parcels of land, but there was much more of an emphasis on the people within the area where you live. So that's what I call a place-based community. As we started to shift to more of an industrial society, you have this phenomenon of people moving now to cities and to factory towns. They're much less tied to the land or to a specific place. They start to develop community relationships with people that they identify with for economic opportunity. As we had highways and automobiles and development of suburbs, people started to move out of cities. There was much less of a commitment, I think, to a place-based community in that type of society. I think what's happening now is a shift or kind of a rediscovery of what I call a philosophy-based community. Now it's much easier to find people who share our specific interests and build a community around that. And that's what I think is so compelling about what's happening here in New Hampshire. I see this as a movement of taking this dispersed philosophy-based community focused on the ideas of liberty and bringing it together to this place to create a place-based community. Everybody came here as individuals seeking liberty for themselves, and they chose to create and join this community of people together. A libertarian world is a world of voluntary community. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 20. In this episode, we're going to present a speech that I gave at the Free Coast Festival in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in September of 2018. The Free Coast is a group of liberty-minded people in New Hampshire's seacoast area, many of whom have come there through the Free State Project, and this is the fifth annual festival that they've put on there. The theme of this year's festival was Building a Voluntary Community. So when they invited me to speak, I decided to focus on the concept of community and to try to define what that means within a libertarian society in which we often emphasize individualism. I tried to make this speech a little more entertaining and inspirational than some of the previous talks that I've given, like my two Porkfest speeches, which were a little more structured, a little more getting into the nuts and bolts of some more technical ideas in libertarianism. 
So they almost felt like a lecture rather than a speech. So this one, I tried to have a little more fun with it. And I also got to tell a story from my family's travel experience, which we talked about in episode six. And this was a story that I've been wanting to tell for a long time. The speech is about a half hour long. And then Joe and I will get back on and break it down a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about the festival and we'll explore some of the ideas in the speech in a little more detail. A quick note on the sound quality here. We've heard some complaints from people about some of our previous live recordings, like our episode 18, the live event I recorded with Patrick Schumacher and Adam Hengels, as well as episode 19, which was my speech from this year's Porkfest. So before I went up on stage this time around, I went over to the sound guy, bought him a drink, gave him a back rub, whispered some sweet nothings in his ear, <laughs> and we were able to plug my recorder right into the mixing board and get what I think was a pretty good recording for the event. So hopefully this has come out a little better than a couple of the previous ones. I do apologize for those episodes. And I will say, if you couldn't get through those episodes because of the sound quality, we did take about a half hour at the end where Joe and I got back on and summarized and kind of broke down some of the ideas in each of those talks. So if you couldn't make it through the live recordings on those, I would encourage you to go back and at least listen to the last bit on each of those episodes, because hopefully that'll give you enough of the content. And of course, we always try to provide detailed show notes for each of these episodes as well. But remember that our policy at An Architecture Podcast is that any and all sound quality problems are the fault of the listener. <laughs> we take no responsibility. <laughs> There were a couple of questions at the end of my speech, which the microphone didn't pick up. So I'll jump in on the recording and restate those questions. So here is my speech from Free Coast Festival 5, entitled, The Power of Place-Based Community. Hi, everyone. Uh, as Kyle said, my name is Tim Broshu. I am a licensed architect, licensed in Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. I'm the principal manager of Audra Architecture LLC, which is my own architecture practice working with, these days I'm mostly doing residential stuff, working with homeowners on additions and renovations and new builds, but I also take on commercial and healthcare projects. I also am the co-host, together with my brother Joe, of An Architecture Podcast, where we talk about libertarian approaches to the development of the built environment, which is talking about cities and roads and buildings and infrastructure. And so one of the topics that often comes up in those kinds of discussions is community. And since that's the theme of the, uh, of the festival here, I want to talk today about what I call place-based community. So first of all, I'm going to start with a personal story that explains kind of how I came to understand what's important about community. Then I want to talk about the idea of individualism and how that relates to community. I want to talk about the evolution of community. So I have a few ways that I like to think about the basis for community and how that has changed over time. And finally, I want to reflect a bit on my observations as I've gotten to know this Liberty community here in New Hampshire and what I think is so powerful about that. So as I said, I want to start with a personal story. The, I titled the story, It Takes a Village. Actually, the, the full title is It Takes a Village to Flush a Toilet. There's a longer story here, which is that in 2015, I left my architecture career of 13 years to spend two years traveling with my wife and our two young kids. One of the places we ended up for a month was Panama. Uh, we got an Airbnb apartment right across the street from the beach. We got there late on a Saturday night, and when we got there, we found out that we couldn't flush the toilet. The water had been shut off to the apartment. But there were some contractors doing some work in the apartment downstairs, so we figured that they had just shut it off for some reason. So I took a five-gallon jug of drinking water that the homeowner had left for us, 
dumped it in the toilet tank, flushed the toilet, we went to bed. The next morning, I got up and went out to investigate the problem. So I went down to the end of the driveway and I found a, a valve on the ground that looked like it was a water supply coming from the town. That seemed to be open. I went behind the house and found a large water tank, probably about 300 gallons, and it was full of water. So, so far, so good. The tank was connected to a pump, but the pump wasn't running. I found an extension cord from the pump running up to the porch on our apartment. So I went back up to the porch, grabbed the extension cord, plugged it in, pump started running, toilet started filling with water, flushed the toilet, everything was good. So we turned to our most second pressing need, which was internet access. We drove into town, got some SIM cards for our phones, got some groceries, some more drinking water. On the way back from town, we noticed on the side of the road, there was a, a bunch of people just kind of stopped, a couple cars and people milling about in the middle of nowhere. And we're trying to figure out what they were doing. And as we drove by, my wife said, oh, it looks like they're getting water over there. I said, oh, good. If our water stops working again, we'll know which unmarked pipe at the side of the road to get it from. Had a good laugh about that. And uh, when we got home, the water had stopped working again. So I went out. The pump was still running. I looked in the tank. The tank was completely empty. 300 gallons of water had vanished. My wife came out with her phone, which now had internet access, and said, the owner sent us an email saying that there was a leak in the apartment downstairs. Don't leave the pump running. <laughs> so apparently, in case you're wondering, internet access is actually more important than running water. But that didn't solve the bigger problem. Not only was the tank empty, it wasn't filling back up. So I went back down to the valve at the end of the driveway, and that was still open, which told me that we weren't getting any water to the property from the town. And at that point, our neighbor came out from across the street, who happened to speak English, and told me that the town only turns the water on in the evening, and they turn it off during the day, which is why everybody has these tanks behind their house. So we went to bed that night. Again, another five gallons of water into the toilet, flushed it, and went to bed. So the next day, we came back from the beach, ready to take a shower, and the contractors who were now working in the apartment downstairs told us they had fixed a leak downstairs. So my wife got in the shower with the kids. She goes to turn the water on, and I hear her say, ah! I say, what was that? She says, I, I think I just got shocked from the shower handle. I said, are, are you sure? I said, touch it again. <laughs> so she go, I hear her say, God, it's electrocuting me. Get the kids out. So I grab the kids out of the tub. I run outside, unplug the pump, come back in, and I say, okay, now touch it again. She said, I'm not touching that. You touch it. <laughs> so I, I, you know, did. I said, okay, all right, it's fine. So I said, I'll go downstairs and, and tell the contractors what's going on. She says, what are you going to tell them? I said, honey, I took three years of Spanish at a public high school. I think I'm capable of communicating the situation to these guys. So I went downstairs, found the contractors, and I said, señores, mi esposa en el agua, zap! <laughs> Which luckily means the same thing in Spanish as it does in English. And they said, electricidad? I said, si, sí, electricidad. Mucho electricidad. En el agua. So they came upstairs, puzzled over the, um, the ungrounded homemade electrical cord plugged into a corroded outlet on the side of the house. And then they left. So we went another night without being able to flush the toilet. The next day, they told us that their electrician had come to fix the problem, which meant plugging the same ungrounded electrical cord into a different corroded outlet. So we got in the shower again, checked it for voltage, turned the water on, and nothing happened. I went out, looked at the pump, and saw this. That is water spewing out from the, uh, the piping connection at the pump. So not wanting to drain the tank, we unplugged the pump, spent another night 
uh, without being able to flush the toilet. I took a picture of this, sent it to the owner. That evening, around midnight, I heard a voice outside, saw a flashlight coming down the driveway, freaked out because I thought our house was getting broken into, but of course it turned out to just be the contractor coming to fix the pump. So the next day, we got back from the beach, got in the shower, ready to take a shower, turned the water on, nothing happened. I went downstairs and saw the pump lying on its side in its enclosure, just emptying the tank onto the ground. It appeared that the contractor's midnight repair had involved some plastic shopping bags and bubble gum. So at this point, we were pretty convinced that we weren't going to have this up and running anytime soon. We needed to get a lot more water. So the next day, on our way into town, we stopped at the pipe sticking out of the ground at the side of the road in a Central American country to get drinking water for our children. Uh, we had a, our neighbor had told us that, that the water here was okay, but you got to question that a little bit. So I asked the guy in line in front of me, I said, El agua es bueno? And he said, oh, si, el agua es muy bueno. Blah, 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 el agua, blah, 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 potable, blah, 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 Which was really all I needed to hear. So we filled up our, our jugs of drinking water, took it home. I poured myself a, poured a tall glass and I said to my wife, okay, drink it. She said, I'm not drinking that, you drink it. So I took a big gulp of the water that we got from the pipe sticking out of the ground at the side of the road in a Central American country while living in a house with a toilet that we couldn't flush. <laughs> and the next day, I uh, was fine. The pump got fixed again, but that didn't really matter because for the next week, the town shut off the water to our property. So we went a whole other week without having water. For the 30 days that we were in Panama, we had running water for five days out of that whole time. And this was what, you, to be clear, you couldn't drink this water. This is just to flush the toilets and, and take a shower. So we were, you know, we were just going crazy with this. It did get better, though. We realized that there was a water truck that would come by about once a day. And so we finally got the brilliant idea to go around the house and get every container we could find that would hold water, including trash cans. And when the water truck came by, they filled them all up, and now we had an unlimited supply of water to flush our toilet to our heart's content. Now, the thing with a water truck is the town sent this thing around to all the houses to fill up their water tanks. But like our property, everybody's tank was at the back of the property, and the truck that came around only had a 20-foot hose on it. Our neighbor across the street told us that that tells you everything you need to know about Panama. But that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about Panama. What it doesn't tell you is how they do it. We were going crazy, as I said, after going through this for just about a week. So how did people live their whole life in a place like this, where it seemed like everything was just tied together with bubblegum and plastic bags? If you can't rely on all of the automated systems that we've all built our lives around, what can you rely on? What I learned, or what I believe that they rely on, is this. This is Carnival in Las Tablas, which is the small rural town near where we were staying. You've probably heard of Carnival in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, but in Panama, this small rural town of Las Tablas has the largest Carnival celebration in the country. There's parades with big floats and music and Carnival queens, and it turns into almost like a big outdoor rave. It's a, it's a wild scene. So we had mostly avoided Las Tablas. We went to some smaller towns to see um, some other Carnival celebrations, but on the last night, we went into town ready to party. But when we got there, it seemed like we had missed the party. The main square in town was empty, but we heard some, a little bit of drumming on the other side, and we could see a flag waving. And the flag came closer to us. The drumming got louder. 
And behind the drummers, we could see a parade of dancers, people of all ages, all in the same kind of dress. The woman in these elaborately embroidered dresses, the men in these straw hats with white button-down shirts, all different ages, all walking and dancing together in this parade. When they got to our corner, the parade broke up a bit, and the flag bearer stopped in front of us, handed his flag off, pulled out a bottle of Seco, which is a, a liquor that is to Panama, kind of what tequila is to Mexico, poured a few shots, offered one to his friend, and offered the rest to us. So we said salute and down the Seco. And then he circled back into the square. And in the meantime, the rest of the crowd had kind of gathered together and were all around the drummers and a woman singing, just clapping and singing. Everybody seemed to know the words of the song and everybody seemed to know each other. And maybe it was just the Seco hitting my bloodstream at that point, but I had a flashback to growing up in Nashua, New Hampshire at Christmas time when my parents would have our friends and families and neighbors over to sing Christmas carols around the piano with my dad singing and, and playing piano. And I realized that this whole thing, all the, the parades, the, the floats, the celebrations, it wasn't for us. This wasn't a show they were putting on for us. It was for them. This whole thing, the carnival, is a reinforcement of their community. And I thought about why they needed to have such a strong community. And of course, I realized that community was what they could rely on. This was how they got by. They couldn't rely on the water system or the electricity or even the canal, but they had their community. This wasn't some historical reenactment of some antiquated notion of their culture. This was their culture, and it was timeless and resilient. Imagine if an, if an earthquake were to hit Panama and take out the electricity and the water supply and everything else. I get the feeling that these people would still get by. I don't know that I can say the same for the rest of us. Since that experience, I've been thinking a lot about this concept of community. And I want to talk here about how I see it working in the context of libertarianism, specifically individualism. I think there's this criticism of libertarians that we're just individualists. We don't care about anybody else. We just want to do our own thing. We're self-interested. We just want to go build a cabin in the woods and be left alone. Which, if anybody does want to go build a cabin in the woods, come talk to me after. I'll help you with that. But I think we can look at this a little bit differently. What we as libertarians really want, I would argue, and I think what most people want, is freedom. And defining freedom here is the ability to act according to your will, which sounds maybe kind of self-serving, but there's two components to this, I think. One is liberty, which I call the ability to act without social consequences. So in other words, you could do whatever you want, but certain things you do, other people are going to have something to say about it. Now, as libertarians, we generally want to maximize liberty. We want to free people so that they're not constrained by what other people want them to do with their time and their resources, which sounds kind of individualistic and self-serving. But I think there's another component to freedom, which is power. And by this, I mean, simply mean that the technical means to act, so that the physical means to do whatever it is you want to do to act in, in the world. So in order to have freedom, you need both the physical ability to do something as well as the liberty to do it without consequences from other people. An example of this is, you know, if you imagine Robinson Crusoe stuck on a desert island. He has unlimited liberty. There's nobody there to constrain anything he might want to do, but he has very little power. He probably has a hard time meeting anything other than his most basic needs. On the other hand, if you took a guy like Jack Spearco, who is you know, very knowledgeable about survival tactics and, and all this kind of stuff. He might do all right on that desert island. But conversely, if you took a guy like Jack Spierko and put him in prison, God forbid, he would have, might have all this ability based on his knowledge, but he would have nothing he could do with it because he, would, he would, wouldn't have liberty. So again, liberty and power, I see, as two components of freedom. 
And the reason that community is so important is that community empowers individuals. Self-sufficiency is a great thing. And to the extent that you can be self-sufficient, you can secure yourself a lot of liberty. But in order to truly be self-sufficient, you might actually have to be Jack Spierko. For the rest of us, we need to rely on other people. We need to rely on a community. And there are a number of ways that communities empower individuals through knowledge sharing, tapping into the things that everybody else knows, and technical knowledge and ability is a big component of what people gain from being in a community. Division of labor, when you work in a group of people, obviously you can have specialization, you can have mutual gain from trade, and we all know the economic benefits of that. A safety net kind of assistance, if you're in a strong community, you can often reach out to people if you're in hard times and people will come and support you, whether it's your family or, or friends, people can help you. And being able to rely on other people in that way allows you to take on more risk, and especially entrepreneurial risk, if you want to start a new venture or business. Obviously, network effects um, in, in a community, there are opportunities for socialization, for meeting other people, for job opportunities, and power projection. Like in this community, if you have a certain ideology that you're trying to broadcast to a bigger group of people, it's easier to do that within the context of a community. So freedom equals liberty plus power. I think we can modify this to say freedom equals individual liberty plus community power. Now, some individualists out there might look at this and say, well, this is starting to sound a little bit like collectivism. You know, forget about that, the community thing. We really need to just focus on individual liberty. But I would say that community is not collectivism. As I realized in Panama, community is not an end in and of itself. It's a technical means to satisfying the needs of individuals within that community. And individuals may voluntarily sacrifice their individual liberty to participate in this community, but they do so with the expectation of getting greater power, greater abilities from that participation within that community. And on the other hand, collectivism, of course, is a real fear. And what we often see is that people who may recognize this power of community might say, well, what we need is to get rid of this individual liberty. As long as we force people into one community together, the more people we have in this community, the more powerful that community becomes. So forget about individual liberty. Let's all kumbaya join together in the same community, but under force of government. And I would say to them that collectivism is not community. In collectivism, individual needs are subverted to the common good, whatever that means. And participation is mandatory, not voluntary. A collectivist society expands through coercion, not through persuasion. And relationships in a collectivist society are antagonistic, not cooperative. Because when you have people joining a community or being forced together in a community, they're going to have different interests that are inevitably conflict with each other. This is why individual liberty is so important. Individual liberty optimizes community. When people are free to join or dissociate from any given community, it makes that community responsive to their needs and dynamic. And so liberated individuals make communities stronger and strong communities make us better individuals. I'm going to try to move quickly through the next bit here, but again, the evolution of communities. So how have communities developed over time? I would argue that there are four what I call basis of community that we can think about here. People-based community where you're, the community is really focused on specific individuals within that community. A place-based community where your community is defined by a certain group of people living within a certain area. What I call a profit-based community, which is a community of people who have shared economic opportunities. And a philosophy-based community, which is a community of people who share similar ideas. And I think all of these aspects exist really in any community, but over time I think certain ones have been more or less dominant. 
I think some of the earliest communities, which might have been tribal, nomadic, hunter-gatherer communities, were people-based communities. The place where they lived wasn't important. It was the people who they were with that were really important, their family and their friends. As we developed to more of an agricultural society, people started to settle down on certain parcels of land. We had cultivation of private property. Now individuals were still committed to certain people, but there was much more of an emphasis on the people within the area where you live. And in fact, people could move in and out of that community to become part of it. So that's what I call a, a place-based community. Now, what happened over time is as we started to shift to more of an industrial society, you have this phenomenon of people moving now to cities into factory towns. So they're moving off of what might have been family farms in their multi-generational uh, places where they grew up. Now they're moving into cities. Maybe they have a, a rental apartment. They're much less tied to the land or to a specific place. They start to develop community relationships with people that they identify with for economic opportunity. It's coworkers, people they're buying and selling from, a business network, more broadly a socioeconomic class of a worker class or a managerial class or whatever. And as time went on and we started to have more technology and infrastructure being developed like electricity, like running water, I think that that freed up people from the kind of things I was observing in Panama. It freed people up to be more individualistic because now you could meet most of your basic needs with all this infrastructure that was being provided. So it reduced that need for community. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, of course, it's great for people to be more individualistic. But what we started to see develop is as we had highways and automobiles and development of suburbs, people started to move out of cities. In fact, you had a situation where mobility really became the way that you gain social status, where you're moving from a rental apartment to a starter home, to a bigger home, to a couple of vacation homes. And so there was much less of a commitment, I think, to a place-based community in that type of society that developed through the 20th century. I think what's happening now is a shift or kind of a rediscovery of what I call a philosophy-based community. So the idea here is that now with all of the communication technologies we have nowadays, it's much easier for us to connect and to find people who share our philosophy. We're not just stuck in a community of where we grew up or the people in our family or the people who we work with. Now it's much easier to find people who share our specific interests and build a community around that. But the problem is we have now these deep, meaningful connections with people who we only know as cartoon characters with fake names on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. So we've rediscovered this need for community for sharing ideas, but we've lost the humanity. We don't have that physical, personal, visceral connection with people. And that's what I think is so compelling about what's happening here in New Hampshire, is I see primarily through the Free State Project, but I see this as a movement of taking this dispersed philosophy-based community focused on the ideas of liberty and bringing it together to this place to create a place-based community, which, as I don't have to tell most of you, but I think the result here has been really impressive. Let me explain what I mean by talking about the strength of this community. I went to a Free Coast meetup a few months ago, and this was on a Thursday night, and there were like 20 people there, plus kids. And I mean, I can't tell you how hard it is for me to get 20 of my friends together in one place at any given time. And this happens like once a week. And I've also heard that when people move here um, through the Free State Project, that they have moving parties and you get to your house and a whole bunch of your neighbors are standing in your driveway waiting to move you in. When I moved into my house, I couldn't get my closest friends to come and help me move. Those are some small examples, but as I've gotten to know a lot more people in this community, 
I've heard stories of everybody from people who are just looking for housing or looking for a job or starting a business or having a baby or going through some kind of illness or even having some really profound personal tragedy. And in all these cases, they reach out to this community and the community responds with food, with housing, with transportation, with patronage of a business, with emotional and even financial support. And for me, I've just been blown away by seeing how this has developed because I think in reading back through Jason Soren's original essays that started the Free State Project, I don't think he mentioned the word community once in those essays. So that wasn't the idea or it wasn't the big goal. It wasn't like we we're all going to get together in some kind of a commune and all get along with each other. Everybody came here as individuals seeking liberty for themselves and they chose to create and join this community of people together. And in doing so, I think that just shows you that a libertarian world is not just these kind of Ayn Randian, stoic individuals peppered around doing their own thing, independent of everybody else. I think that this liberty community here in the Free Coast is evidence that a libertarian world is a world of voluntary community. And to all those, any collectivists out there who would say that in order to have a strong community, we need to force everybody together under a government or whatever. I would tell them to come to New Hampshire, come to the free coast, because being here in New Hampshire, that tells you everything you need to know about community. Thank you. Any questions? All right, maybe, maybe one question. The first question was asking about the five days out of the 30 that we had water while we were in Panama. He was asking if those were five consecutive days or how that worked. They were not consecutive. No, no. When the, what happened was, you know, it's, I told you the whole story the whole first week, but when the pump was running, the town wouldn't give us water. When the town gave us water, the pump would stop working. The pump would break, right? When the town gave us water and the pump was running, the power went out and we couldn't run the pump. <laughs> and that, it was just this endless cycle. So uh, the five days, would, would that's like some sun up to sun down. But, and there were some days where they got it running, we were able to take a shower or something, and then it went out again. But <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a challenge. The second question referenced a comment I had made about multi-generational families within a community and asked how we could build and maintain multi-generational communities. You know, again, I think it's about building voluntary relationships within your community, but also within, within your family. I mean, it's, it's about making a place that your kids want to come back to, you know, and um, giving, them, giving them a reason to, to want to come back. The last question just asked if I would have the slides up online. I will post the slides. Yeah, I, I think we got this recorded, so we'll put it up as a podcast episode and, um, and hopefully get the slides up on YouTube. So if you want to check us out, um, anarchitecturepodcast.com is our podcast website, and audrearchitecture.com is my firm. I have a booth out here. I'd be happy to talk to you guys all uh, after the event. Thank you. That was my speech from Free Coast Festival 5, entitled The Power of Place-Based Community. So now I'll bring Joe on for a little discussion, and this is a special occasion here, because Joe has actually flown all the way here from Australia just to record this podcast episode. We wanted to make sure we were on the free coast for this <laughs> That's <right>. episode. <laughs> Joe's come over here for the week with his family, and uh, we've all taken some time off to spend some time together. So here we are, live on the free coast, and I feel freer already. <laughs> I've been getting my fix of Maine lobster and New England seafood, as well as watching some Red Sox playoffs games. So I feel like I'm back in my place-based community. 
And most importantly, Tim and I ordered our Liberty Mugs. Liberty Mugs! <laughs> which I had been joking around with Rollo from the Rollo and Slappy Show, and they're the guys that run Liberty Mugs. I was joking around in, with him on Twitter a little bit, and, and it came out that my catchphrase from the 2016 election was, the way you feel about Trump voters is the way I feel about all voters. <laughs> and I asked, told him I wanted that on a Liberty Mug, and so he made it happen, and, and I flew here from Australia just to pick up my Liberty Mug. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell you, smug condescension never tasted better. So how does the Free Coast Festival compare to Porkfest? Well, it's a really different kind of thing. I mean, Porkfest is this big, you know, week-long outdoor camping extravaganza, whereas the Free Coast Festival is a little bit more of a focused conference. But they do some really cool stuff. The Free Coast Festival is put on by an organization called the Human Action Foundation, which represents this group of liberty-minded people on the seacoast area. The first night they had an event at a new building that they've purchased, actually, which they call the Praxium which is going to be an event space and kind of a flexible use space for people in the Seacoast area, which is really kind of incredible. You know, as I talked about the strength of this community, I mean, here we have a community of people who have gotten together. They've raised the money to purchase a building where they're going to get together and have all kinds of events. And it's not like real estate is cheap in Portsmouth these days. Yeah. Well, this is actually in Dover, for those of you who know New Hampshire. So it's about... uh, about 10 or 15 minutes from Portsmouth, but it's a little more central to the broader Free Coast area. Yeah. And it's a great space. It was a function hall at one point, and they have a pretty good piece of property to do outdoor events. They had a bonfire there. They had a pig roast. <laughs> this was on Friday night. So they were all pretty excited about that, having to really make it a place for this community here in the Free Coast. Saturday was more of the formal presentations. That's when I gave my speech. And they had a really good lineup of speakers like Mary Ruart and Radley Balco and Naomi Brockwell, and Professor CJ from the Dangerous History Podcast. Yeah, I was interested to find that he was speaking there, because I'd been following his podcast from pretty early on. I think I'd heard him on the uh, Bad Quaker podcast, like back when he first got started. Huh. And it's, it's been interesting to see him you know, become pretty successful. Unlike, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to see some podcasters becoming quite successful. <laughs> Yeah, I got to talk to CJ a bit, so I, I mentioned to him that you were a, you were OG with his podcast, <laughs> and I uh, was picking his brain on some uh, some podcasting tips. I think the tip number one is actually produce podcasts every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> that does seem to be an important one. <laughs> yeah, we haven't quite mastered that one yet. Saturday evening, they had a cruise out in Portsmouth Harbor, which was probably the highlight of the event for a lot of people. But not your speech. <laughs> yeah, no, I I couldn't compete with this. We actually saw some whales while we were out there. Really? Yeah, and I'm not just talking about early investors in cryptocurrency. Uh, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> <laughs> Although there were some of those on the ship. And then the next day, Sunday, they had a few more presentations. And then an event they call the Porcupine's Den, which was a Shark Tank kind of entrepreneurial competition where people would come up and pitch business ideas for for some business they wanted to get started up. And there was a panel of judges who would evaluate those ideas and award a prize of five dash, which is a popular cryptocurrency up here in New Hampshire. So that was worth around a thousand bucks in Federal Reserve notes. (laughs) And they actually invited me to be one of the judges for it. So that was a lot of fun. So were you like the Simon Cowell, just insulting everyone that came up on stage (laughs) and crushing people's dreams? No, I was more like Paul Abdul. I was just sitting up on the stage, pissed drunk. 
there were a lot of cool ideas that people presented. Everything from a guy who was putting together an organization to help people in Haiti to a guy who wanted to start a marijuana bus tour (laughs) since uh, marijuana is now in the process of being legalized in Maine. The judges suggested that he name his business the Cannabus. <laughs> <laughs> I actually saw something like that just down in New York City. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. They just parked. It's like a, mo- a motorhome that's painted all green on the outside. And they just park it right on 7th Ave oh, yeah. and, and sell off edibles. <laughs> <laughs> well, this would be like, this is kind of like the winery tour. It's like the Napa Valley like, <laughs> yeah. wine tour of marijuana. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then Naomi Brockwell got up there, and of course she is, for those who don't know, she's a kind of a, a media powerhouse. She works with John Stossel and puts a lot of content out there in her own right. She got known as the Bitcoin Girl, which I think was her, her Twitter handle. She puts out a lot of content. She's really active in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency scene. And she also has some really fantastic music videos <laughs> that she put out. Um, usually they're kind of spoofs all about, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. <laughs> But she was actually trained as an opera singer, apparently. Really? Yeah. Oh, and she's from Australia. So you should oh, really? look her up sometime yeah. down there. <laughs> so there's another one in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's moved back to the States uh, now. Could be another one claimed by the Free State Project. <laughs> hey, let's hope, yeah. But the winner of the Porcupine Den contest was two young people who are starting a dance studio in their hometown. And these guys, I don't know if they're even out of high school yet, but they've started this dance studio. They're both trained dancers, and it's in a kind of a small town in New Hampshire. And they've found a space to have their studio in. They've got a handful of kids signed up for their lessons, and they're really making a go of it. And they had a solid plan for what they would do with the money. And, of course, the best part was that they got all of us judges up on the stage and gave us all a ballet lesson <laughs> in front of everybody. So to get buy-in. <laughs> that's it so they they made us dancers i am now a dancer i was gonna say did you really need any more lessons in ballet <laughs> they've rekindled my flame for dance <laughs> but we were all we were all really impressed of course it was a great presentation um but they really had put a lot of thought into how they were going to make their business work so yeah so we were happy to give them the award so were there any other highlights Well, one thing that was kind of a personal highlight for me was after my speech, I went back to my exhibition table. I I had sponsored the event. I had a a little table set up for my architecture practice. And there's this guy standing next to the table and he he turns to me, he turns to me and says, hey, have we met before? And I said, I'm I'm not sure. You know, I've kind of ran into a lot of people at Porkfest or here and there within this community. Um, He says, well, my name's Gard. I said, oh, you're Gardner Goldsmith? He says, yeah. I said, oh, I said, I need to thank you. He says, for what? I said, about 15 years ago, I used to listen to your AM talk radio show in Manchester, New Hampshire, and that's what got me started thinking about libertarianism. (laughs) Gardner has been around New Hampshire for a long time, and for a while he had this talk radio show on a local station in New Hampshire where I was working at the time, and so I started tuning in to him during my commute, and that's really the first time I heard anybody promoting ideas of libertarianism and even things like anarcho-capitalism and, you know, referencing the Mises Institute and Foundation for Economic Education. And yeah, I mean, you imagine hearing that on any other radio show. So it was, so I told him all of this and he was like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, I love hearing that. <laughs> Guards are really a great kind of charismatic guy. And he turns around, he says, hey, Mary, Mary, come here. You got to meet this guy. <laughs> of course, he's talking to Mary Ruart. <laughs> Who, uh, for anyone who doesn't know Mary Ruart, she's been involved in the liberty movement for a long time. 
and she was speaking at the event as well. So Garda took me over and introduced me along with a few other people to Mary. And as I told Mary, <laughs> I said, yeah, well, Gardner, you know, Gardner converted me to libertarianism <laughs> a few years ago. I said, and once I, once I had crossed that bridge, I had to break the news to my wife. So I bought her your book, Mary's book <laughs> called Healing Our World, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which I think is a really accessible introduction to libertarianism for people who might not otherwise, um, you know, be inclined to, to get into it. Yeah. And it, it comes at it from more of a sort of pragmatic, you know, this is how, this is how the ideas of liberty actually help the poor and, and everybody else. Right. Um, so, you know, some, some, someone who's maybe a bit more left-leaning can access these ideas and kind of see how, see how they fit into their worldview. I think the tone is meant to be more kind of positive and persuasive rather than, you know, some of the moralistic. <laughs> yeah, some of the, the moralistic badgering and kind of shock value that you get yeah. in a lot of you know, introductions to libertarianism. Yeah, well, that was like for me. So I had read Ayn Rand, you know, Atlas Shrugged back when I was in college. Yeah. But never really got 100% on board with it. But then I, it was reading probably Ron Paul's book, The Revolution, uh-huh. which had, was a bit more like that healing the world kind of style where it was more kind of pragmatic and, and just talking about, well, look, this is how markets solve these problems better than the government does and all that kind of stuff that. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's what really swayed me was, was more of that almost utilitarian, pragmatic kind of argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've, uh, we've said before in our podcast that you really need to, of course, you need to have the, the principle understanding of why that's important, which is grounded in the non-aggression principle. But you also need to have these pragmatic, practical solutions because not everybody is just going to get on board with the principles and throw pragmatism to the wind like we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the thing, that, that's, that's what libertarians get accused of. Is that we're just these like ideologues that are married to this like religious principle, this non-aggression principle, but uh, you know, mm. these reasonable centrists, they just want to be pragmatic and solve problems in the real world and you know, and right. they're willing to use the state or whatever other means are necessary to do that, you know, because they're willing to make the hard choices. Right. So I think Mary's book does a really good job of bridging that the philosophical motivations with uh, some practical solutions. Yeah. So for me, it was it was really cool to meet both Gardner and Mary at this event. And, you know, th- these guys are some of my heroes within the movement. They've definitely formed some of my thinking, um, especially as I was first discovering these ideas of libertarianism. And look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I found out about Gardner from his many appearances on the School Sucks podcast. Oh, yeah. And yeah. those are always some of my favorite episodes as well. So yeah, he's just a great, charismatic guy. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He has a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really cool. I'm hoping to see him again at, at some other events. I think it's great that the theme of this conference was emphasizing community. As you said in your speech, this is something that with libertarians, you know, we always say it's a bit like herding cats trying to get libertarians to work together, where we do have this kind of philosophy of rugged individualism, as they say. It's like everyone, every man for himself. But at the same time, that's not actually inherent in libertarianism. Or in humanity, really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just an, an interpretation. I mean, I think Ayn Rand has a lot to answer for there where she's kind of painted this picture of, of people as these, these individuals, you know, stoic rocks standing on their own, making waves in the world. Although even in Ayn Rand's books, I think that's played up a bit more because you know, when you look at it, the people in her books do find communities. Howard Rourke has his group of friends who he chooses, and yeah. you know, the same with, with the Dagny Taggarts and the, whatever the other guys in Atlas Shrugged. They do find these communities of like-minded people, 
And then together, these communities are kind of combining their strengths, and, and that's what changes the world. Yeah, Galt's Gulch was a commune, right? Is that what how Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good to see libertarians really emphasizing the role of community within the philosophy and within the practice of libertarianism. Yeah, that was a main point I wanted to make here is that, you know, I, I wanted to tell libertarians that it's okay to be part of a community. <laughs> it doesn't make you a commie. You, it doesn't make you a communist. It's okay to have friends if you're a libertarian. <laughs> Nobody's going to throw you out of a helicopter just for having friends. <laughs> oh, maybe That depends on who the friends are, so to speak. <laughs> but it is important to make this distinction between community and collectivism. Of course, as I said in the speech, the way I see it, community is not collectivism, and collectivism is not community. I think collectivism is something that often can destroy community when people don't have the liberty or the freedom to leave or to change that community. Yeah, I thought that was a really good point. We need to figure out a, how to make some good memes out of it <laughs> to get the message out. Yeah. In the same sense that you know, some libertarians might fear community because of the threat of collectivism, Everybody else fears libertarianism because they think that it's the opposite of community. They think they have to give up the idea of community, you know, to take on this individualist philosophy. But it's, it just shows such a poor understanding of what the philosophy is and how it can be applied in the real world. Yeah, and, and the key word here is voluntary, right? I mean, there is a sense in which when you commit yourself to a community, to some extent you may need to give something up or give up some aspect of your individual liberty in order to support and participate in that community. That could be something as simple as, you know, financially supporting it, agreeing to pay fees or donations or, you know, some kind of, if it's some kind of formal organization that you become a member of, or maybe you agree, as I said in the speech, to help out some other people within that community, or even just taking your time to participate in and contribute to whatever activities that community is trying to promote. There's a sense in which you're subverting your individuality to some common goals of this larger group. But again, as long as that's all done on a voluntary basis, there's nothing there that is in conflict with libertarianism or even with individualism. As I said, it's really a means to an end of satisfying your own individual needs. Right. And you really, when you talk about making sacrifices, it's not like you're you know, swearing some oath of allegiance to join the military or something like that and you know, sacrifice everything you are to this common entity. It's, it's, you know, it's, you're talking about maybe you know, picking up trash now and then or chipping some money in to fix things up or joining in with, with community meetings and that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's not like an, an all-encompassing totalitarian situation. <laughs> well, I mean, it could, you know, you could have situations where you have some kind of stronger commitment like that. I mean, you think about something like an employment situation. I mean, when you agree to work for a company or an organization, you're giving up a lot. Mm. You're committing to give up a lot of time. You're giving up a lot of energy. Depending on the line of work, you could be even putting your own life or health or welfare at, at risk, mm -hmm. but you do that voluntarily based on the expected benefits that you're going to get from that. Right. So it's not just that a community is this, you know, a group of neighbors who gets together to have a potluck dinner or something. It's, there are, of course, more structured forms of community, which might have a greater or lesser commitment requirements. Yeah, and as you went through the different types of community, you know, the people-based, the place-based, profit-based, and then the philosophy-based, it struck me that... It's not that one of those necessarily supplants whatever came before it. People living today are really members of all these different types of communities in different contexts within their lives. You know, so you have your people-based community, that's probably your family or you know, close friends. Place-based, well, again, you know, maybe your neighborhood or your local town. Profit-based, again, you know, most people are still working for employers these days. And then philosophy-based communities, which, as Tim said, is becoming much more prevalent these days, where the people you really identify with the most 
maybe people that you've never met in person. Mm -hmm. And I think what was really the key takeaway from your speech was that nowadays we're at a point where all this stuff is starting to come together, where you can take these people from these kind of dispersed philosophy-based communities and movements like the Free State Project are giving them ways to sort of form that into, I guess, a more cohesive people and place-based community. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think that those four kind of categories that I broke out, as I said in this speech, those are really factors in any community. And at certain times, there's a greater or lesser emphasis on one or the other, or you know, even in an individual's life, as you said, they might be a part of a number of different communities with different bases. But I think that when you see something as really a strong community, it has all of those things, whether you're looking at the libertarian community in New Hampshire or looking at the community that I observed in Panama. These are communities where you have people who are committed to each other through families with their multi-generational relationships, through place where you have people who are growing up in the same place and getting to know everybody within that place, within that village, within that town, having these events like Carnival or Porkfest or the Fricos Festival yeah. to reinforce that community within a place and to give people a reason to be there. And then, of course, profit-based community, these people who are all living in this place, all help to support each other. So in Panama, it was primarily a rural community. There was a, a bit of a town there that had more commercial activity. But I think that people's economic well-being was really interconnected with that of their neighbors and people who live in their area. And similarly, in New Hampshire, a lot of people in this libertarian community have started their own ventures and rely on other people within this community to help support them. I've gotten to know Mark Warden, who is, is known as the Porcupine Realtor. Yeah. <laughs> Porcupine, of course, is the mascot of the Free State Project. He's told me that a majority of his clients come to him through the Free State Project. So having this base of people who are committed to supporting other people within their community really makes it viable for people to start up a business here. And then, of course, a philosophy-based community. You know, in, in Panama, I think that, of course, Carnival was started as a kind of religious festival. So I, you know, I think there you have a community where there is a shared philosophy among all these people. I think a religion plays a big part of that. But also, you know, broader cultural norms and, and cultural ideas are probably shared within that community. And of course, in New Hampshire, this libertarian community, there's a lot of common ground on philosophy, although there is quite a bit of diversity among libertarians here. Of course, you know, you don't say libertarians are, are famous <laughs> for all our internecine warfare <laughs> and the Free State Project's pledge is intentionally broadly defined to allow for kind of a big tent yeah. where a lot of people can come together. But even at that, people with different opinions within libertarianism here certainly respect other people within the community. I think that having people here who share your philosophy and who you can have kind of daily discussions with about libertarianism is really liberating for people who are coming from places where they might not know a single other person who thinks the way that they think. Yeah, I know a little bit of what that's like <laughs> living in Australia. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think when you see a strong community like Panama and like the New Hampshire libertarian community, I think that people, place, profit, and philosophy all play strong roles and, in a way, become self-reinforcing. One idea from the speech that I didn't really get to flush out as much as I had wanted to was the relationship between community, technology, and infrastructure and how as technology and infrastructure become more accessible and available, that it can free people to be more individualistic and reduce their need for community. Yeah, this is a sort of complaint that I think you see with a lot of the urbanist circles where, um, especially in relation to sort of the suburban sprawl development pattern, where we've seen you know this, these massive investments in infrastructure that have allowed people to kind of spread out and 
the way we'd look at it is everything is kind of mediated through these local governments or state governments, you know, who fund all this infrastructure, but but they don't really require people to come together into the communities to sort of solve these problems together. So they just kind of assume that, you know, they pay the taxes and it's all being done for them. So what the urbanists want is to promote more of the traditional development pattern, which is more about people living in more dense, compact, not necessarily cities, but downtowns, I guess, where you have everything within walking distance and you're not always driving in and out of parking lots to get from one place to another. And having lived in places like that, you can see how that does help to develop more of a feeling of community, at least, even if you don't necessarily know the name of everyone you see on the street. When you walk past the same people every day on your way to get groceries or something, then, you know, it's, it's kind of hard not to get to know people after a little while. Yeah, that's really that idea of place-based community, that you have some commonality with people who, who are living in the same place as you. You know, if you're on the subway with someone in Boston, you could probably turn to them and ask them something about, you know, the Red Sox, yeah. <laughs> as you said earlier, or, or something that's going on in town. And you'd have, you'd have some kind of common ground to connect with people on based on the shared place where you live. And as communities start to spread out, like you see in some more suburban communities, I think you lose a lot of that. For one thing, you lose the density and the, the amount of people who are living in or identify with a certain place. Yeah. And you also lose kind of the, the specialness about that place. Yeah. You know, when you get out into the suburbs, it's like you could go from one exit to the next on the highway and have the exact same experience. You know, you get off the highway and there's there's a McDonald's and there's the gas station and maybe up the road there's a grocery store or a Walmart or whatever. Yeah. And there's nothing special about those places. I mean, they're they're functional. You know, you can meet your needs. And each of those places is maybe special to each individual. You know, like your house is special to you, right? Right. But it's not necessarily special to anyone else in that community. And again, when you're traveling around via car as opposed to just walking, then you're not going to have these kind of interactions where you're bumping into people in the street. It's not like you wave to everyone that you drive past in a car right. and say hello or good morning <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that what's happened in a lot of places is that the need for community, like I observed in Panama, has been taken away because you have functioning infrastructure and you have easy access to things like food and, and water yeah. and other amenities without necessarily relying on a, a specific community to help provide those things. And I think that's what's happened is that as this need for community has been taken away, which, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, of course, it's good that people as individuals are <laughs> better able to meet their own needs. But as that need for community has gone away, I think people still feel like they want to be part of a community. And I think that that's where government has stepped in and kind of taken the mantle of community away from individuals. And so in a lot of places, the term community has become synonymous with government. When people talk about the community coming together to do something, they're often talking about the government in that town getting together to do something. Yeah, and this is where there's this confusion about the difference between community and collectivism, Right. where really the government has come in with this collectivist approach to solving problems that historically communities have solved. Mm -hmm. So really, like you said, the two words have kind of become almost synonymous with each other in most people's minds. The challenge for us libertarians, of course, then becomes if people identify the community with the government in a particular area, then anything that we say against the government, people view as an affront to their community. Yeah. Not only that, but where, where government has monopolized a lot of the kind of services that might be provided by a community, like certain types of infrastructure, or like an education system, or transportation system, or safety net services. For those of us who want to try to live our lives outside of those systems, it's hard for us to do that on our own. And that's, again, what a real strength of 
the libertarian community in New Hampshire, led by the Free State Project, is doing. It's providing a way for people to live according to their libertarian principles and to say no to government services and participation in the government's version of community and giving them an alternative with other like-minded libertarians living in the same area. So to give some examples of the kind of stuff that's going on here in New Hampshire, if you're someone who wants to, let's say, raise your kids outside of the government school system, I think one of the challenges there for homeschoolers or unschoolers is finding structured activities for your kids to do, as well as finding opportunities for socialization for your kids. Because if all these other kids are stuck in the government schools, then they're not going to be around when you're looking for things to do with your kids. But here in New Hampshire, this libertarian community has built up a really strong network of activities and resources for parents who want to join this community and to educate their children outside of the school system. One of the speakers at Free Coast Festival was Taylor Davis, and she and her husband, James, have a, a podcast called One Free Family. They were both, I think, educators at one time in their life, and they've run summer camps. And I don't know if they would say they're homeschooling or if they're unschooling, but their kids are on a, on a path of self-directed learning. And their podcast is a great resource for anybody who's looking to get into that. Um, and they're here. They're here in New Hampshire, and they're a part of this community of a number of other parents who are doing similar things uh, with their children. You know, a lot of libertarians are really into cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Dash and all of these other great and not so great coins that are out there. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is in most places, if you get cryptocurrency, it's like, what are you going to do with it? You know, this is phrased to hodl, right? You just, yeah. You're just going to hodl all your coins until you, you can park a Lambo in your garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still working on buying my first coin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've still got sour grapes about that. <laughs> Well, in New Hampshire, in fact, in Portsmouth, where this event took place, there are bricks and mortar stores where you can come and spend Bitcoin. In fact, there's a shop called the Free State Bitcoin Shop, which is the first thing that I see when I walk over the bridge from my house in Maine. <laughs> the first thing I see is the Free State Bitcoin Shop right in downtown Portsmouth. They're working to educate people on, on cryptocurrencies and get people using them. But there are also people in town who have gone out to a lot of shops and restaurants and bars and have set them up with the technology and the understanding to allow them to accept cryptocurrency. They have something they call the world-famous Bitcoin tour, which is in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And they claim that Portsmouth has more retail stores and restaurants to spend your Bitcoin than any place on earth. Yeah, right. <laughs> I believe it. And they have a map of this. You can walk around downtown and go to there's restaurants, breweries, wine bars, there's retail shops, hair salons, theater venues, even the yoga and dance studios you can go to and you know, pay for your yoga class with Bitcoin yep. or Dash or something. <laughs> They're making this all happen here. Not only that, but another of the speakers at Free Coast Festival was Emily Smith from Bardo Farms, which is a local farm here in New Hampshire started by Free Staters. And they provided a pig for the pig roast at the, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. the Free Coast Festival event on Friday night. But she talked about how they started doing what they call Liberty Markets, which is essentially a, a kind of a glorified farmer's market yeah. where they'll come out with their farm products and they get other people within the community to come out and market and sell their, their products or whatever they're selling. And a lot of people from this community will come to this event and there you can spend Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and purchase all this stuff. You can buy your food there. You can buy you know, gifts. You can buy all kinds of stuff that people are selling through these liberty markets. So again, if you want to try to live your life outside of the Federal Reserve System, it's actually possible to do that here in New Hampshire because of this community. Yeah. And of course, if you want to get you know, politically involved, most places around the country, it's probably pretty hard to get elected to any office as a liberty candidate. But here in New Hampshire, we have the support group of people, not just who might vote for you or, or hold signs for you, 
but there are organizations here that will help to educate you on the election process, on the legislative processes, and how to get things done at the State House here in New Hampshire. And I think the Free State Project, last time I checked, they had like 45 people that have been elected to state office in New Hampshire You're right. over the years. And so if you want to try to start up a political career, God bless you. <laughs> well, this is the place to do it. Um, and again, it's because of this community. And on the other hand, if you reject politics and are more into political activism, of course, there's a lot of that going on here as well. You know, again, it's, it's really hard in a lot of places to build up any kind of momentum or even to get recognized for doing some kind of activist stunt <laughs> that might just get you thrown in jail. And what good is that if nobody's there to support you and document it and, and put it out there? But here in New Hampshire, there's been a lot of local political activism. One of the people I met on the cruise was Derek J. Freeman, who was actually one of the co-owners of the Free State Bitcoin shop, which I mentioned. <laughs> but in his previous life, when he first came to New Hampshire, he was really on the activist scene. And in fact, he made a movie called Derek J.'s Victimless Crime Spree yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about a lot of the activist movements that he was doing in Keene, New Hampshire at that time. Yeah, I used to follow him a little bit when he was on like Free Talk Live yeah, yeah. a few years back. Yeah, and so in this movie, he's going around with a handful of other activists and doing things like walking into the state house, singing protest songs, which are to the tune of Christmas carols. <laughs> they call it the Shire Choir. Yeah, Shire for New Hampshire. Yeah. And that's one of their ways of protesting and trying to get heard. He also uh, walked around the Manchester airport just in his underwear with another woman who was just in a bathing suit. <laughs> and they were, of course, protesting TSA, you know, strip searches and yeah. invasions of privacy and all of this stuff. And they were just handing out, handing out flyers to everybody. <laughs> He's been arrested for walking into a courtroom for, he got knocked over on his bike by a police cruiser just for riding <laughs> his bike filming. Jeez. And he ended up doing some jail time for all this stuff. <laughs> I think he had like eight or nine charges against him by the end of this whole, yeah. this whole thing. So if you want to get a sense of, of some of the activism that has gone on here in New Hampshire, definitely check that out. It's called Derek Chase Victimless Crime Spree. I think it's, it's online for free. So these are all the kind of things, well, maybe not walking around naked in an airport, but <laughs> some of these things are the kind of things that I think a lot of libertarians you know, envision themselves doing in a libertarian world. And in most places, that's not possible. But here in New Hampshire, all this stuff is happening, and it's happening because of the community that they've built here. Thanks for listening to Anarchitecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. Zap!